Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. It's Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. So grateful that you're spending time with us. And the Facebook page name. Yes, it is now Impact of Influence, so you can find us there. And we're starting a new podcast with Michael DeWitt called The Wicked South. But we are still continuing to do our Impact of Influence thing as well. So tune into both. And uh, we'll also give you updates on Shinquella Robinson. We're working on that now. Murdochs will continue. And this is a tie-in to the Murdochs because Collier Landry's father was convicted of killing his mother. And Collier actually had to testify in the trial. And so we're so uh, happy to have Collier Landry on. He is the mind before a murder in Mansfield, the documentary about the murder of his mother by his father. CollierLandry.com. He's got a bunch of uh, YouTube channels. He has Instagram. Just look for Collier Landry. You'll find them all. And he's very interesting. And uh, we welcome Collier Landry. Hi, Collier. Thanks for having me. Well, Collier, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let's start off with talking about what it was like growing up with your father. He was abusive to myself. He was abusive to my mother. Now, my father was a doctor in a small town in Ohio, in Mansfield. Very arrogant, very um, narcissistic. And he was a world-class pathological liar. Around November of that year, my mother was seemingly sort of downtrodden a little bit you know i think she was really worn out from my father and the divorce and she says to me she goes collier i want you to know i would never leave you and if anything ever happens to me your father probably had me killed she has mafia ties he has this and that i'm looking at her i'm going you know when i call my mom mommy i was like well mommy like that i would never let anything happen to you or or that that wouldn't happen and you know she was like seemingly warning warning me that's Weird and uh, horrifying. So let's go to the night your mother was murdered. So your your mom and your grandmother, who was close to your mom, was there in the house. You, of course, and your father. I woke up on the morning of New Year's Eve, 1989, at around 3.15, 3.18 a.m. to the sound of a scream. And then I heard two loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. Between those thuds, I heard my father's voice muttering. And I was petrified. And I was sleeping in my bed and I was contemplating, like, what am I going to do? And I heard these footsteps come down the hallway. And I was counting, it was about 12 footsteps. And I could see as I'm sleeping out of my peripheral vision, the feet stop in my doorway. Because I always slept with my door open as a child. And the feet stopped in the doorway and I can see them out of my peripheral vision. And I'm just saying to myself, like, don't look up. Something tell me like, don't look up. And I firmly believe that if I looked up, I wouldn't be sitting here today Ugh. because as we end up finding out, you know, it would have been much, it would have been really easy for my father to say, you know, Hey, she left with the kid, right? Make the hole a little bit bigger. Yeah. I somehow went back to sleep. I woke up a few hours later. I come, I run straight to my mother's room. I'm rummaging through her bed, looking for blood, looking for any sort of clues. 
I come downstairs and I say to my father, where is my mother? And my father is seated on the couch. He's got a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just taken a shower and he looks at me and I said, where is my mother? And he said, well, mommy took a little vacation call you. And right then I knew, I didn't know for sure he had killed her, but I knew he had done something to her. And I feared that she was dead. Was he upset nope. when you, uh, when he told you this information? Did he just seem completely normal? He was completely normal. Wow. Almost eerily. Wow. Well, mommy took a little vacation call here. And you knew better. Yeah, I knew better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was the story your dad gave you about your mother? I confronted him about the noises and he goes, well, you know, mommy came down and she was screaming at me or hollering at me and complaining about money, complaining about Sherry, which was his mistress at the time. <laughs> and she was, and she was actually pregnant at the time. I didn't know this, but my yeah. mother did and hollering about her and screaming. And she threw her purse at her, at him, which is, must've been the sound that I heard hitting the wall was the purse. <laughs> mm. She threw her credit cards at him, stormed out the back door of the house, walked down the driveway and got into a car that was waiting at the end of the driveway and left. So at this point, you become like an 11-year-old super sleuth. Explain what you do next. So one of the things that I had done before all of this happened is I had, after my mother had told me that revelation in, in uh, November of that year, I had written down all of my mother's friend's phone numbers. And on a piece of paper, and I put them in a, a stuffed Garfield that I had. Wow. Santa Claus Garfield. So my father leaves. My mother just purchased a cordless phone. So, and my grandmother's like 75. And I'm like, okay, she's not going to outrun me. <laughs> so she's like, okay. she's like, you need to listen to your father. We're not going to call the police. I said, okay, no, Grammy, no problem. I grab the cordless phone. I run upstairs. I get that list. I lock myself in the bathroom and I start calling everyone. And I said, look, I tell them what happened. And I say, look, I'm not supposed to call the police, but like, wink, wink, you can. And that's what happened. Two uniform officers show up that day to the house. My grandmother is livid with me, uh, yelling at me, saying, I called the police. I'm like, I didn't call the police. <laughs> I led them through the house, and she was hovering over me the whole time, so I couldn't really talk to them. But I did pull one of them aside. I said, look, and my mother always used to say, I don't trust your father as far as I could throw him. So I said that to the police officer. They left. I didn't hear anything. So then you, your dad, and your grandmother have dinner on New Year's Eve, which I'm sure was somewhat weird. <laughs> um, and your dad leaves the next day because he's opening a new practice in Pennsylvania. And at this point, you secretly get on the phone and contact your mother's friends, and they tell you that they've filed a missing person report. The ball is now rolling. By the stroke of God, or whatever you want to call it, divine intervention, a police lieutenant uh, detective named David Messmore sees the missing persons report and comes to my house because it's new year's day and there's not a lot of stuff going on right and grand my grandmother is livid and dave kind of gets himself into the house and i'm like come on in and my grandmother goes to the, to go call my father because she's like screaming at him and i say to him i said look my mother would never leave me uh something has happened to her i don't know if she's dead i don't know what this is give me your business card i go to school tomorrow i will i will reach out Gives me his card. <laughs> so the next day, friends pick me up. I go to school. I walk right into my principal's office. I, I, I give the, the business card. I said, I need to talk to this man right now. This is very mature for a 12-year-old. Well, I'm 11 at the time. I'm almost 11. 
I'm about to turn 12, but I'm full on in this mode of like, I'm going to figure out what happened to my mother. He comes down and I just, for three, four hours, I lay out the entirety of my parents' relationship. Wow. And the girlfriend, Sherry, all the things my father did, my, my father's uh, proclivity for violence, uh, how he treated me, how he would abuse my, myself and my mother. And I said to him, I said, look, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pull out the bookshelves because we have crawl spaces and start looking for my mother's body. Or I'm going to look to see Whoa. if her purse that she would always carry that she would never leave the house with. I'm going to look for that. And I just started stacking evidence against my father. And you start to pay attention over the next, I guess, three weeks, thereabouts, of things that are different about your father. What do you notice? My father had come home with like cuts on his hands or bruises, and his demeanor started changing. This is a man who used to call me like a little pussy for covering my eyes when I see violent movies. And... Then he all of a sudden sees me playing a video game because I'm playing a shooting game or a fighting game. He's, I would never have gotten this game for you. It's very violent. And I'm like, who is this person? So his behavior was so bizarre. And so now you're really paying attention. You're looking for that big clue that's going to clinch the deal and discover what happened to your mom. So this is mid-January and your father takes you to his office. And on the drive back, he stops at a gas station and he goes in to pay. And at this point, a big moment happens in the case. I'm watching him through the windshield. I start rummaging through his truck. I open up the center console and I find two photographs. One is of a house that I've never seen before. And the second one is of his mistress, Sherry Campbell, with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace wrapped in plastic. And I said to myself, this is a brand new house that I've never seen. And she's in it. Like, why is the fireplace covered in plastic? So I go the next day to school. I call Dave Messmore. I said, this is what I found. He I tell about this, and I don't hear from him for a while. And then something kind of scary happens. You notice that your father's behavior is is getting a little erratic. It looks like he's more and more under duress. He says, I want to take you. Uh, I have a medical conference in Florida, and I think we should do a father and son trip. Ugh. Now, every year, we would go to medical conferences in Florida, but they were in the spring during spring break. They weren't in the dead of winter in January, right three weeks after Christmas. So I knew at that moment I was not coming back from Florida. So I called Dave Messman the next day at school. And I said, you, you, like, he's, he wants to take me to Florida. I'm not coming back. <laughs> like, I'm going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Wow. That had to be really scary for an 11-year-old child. And we know you didn't go to Florida because you're still with us. Uh, when did law enforcement intervene? A couple of days go by and I wake up the morning of January 24th, 1990 and two people from child protective services are there. They're serving a search warrant on my house. When I come downstairs, there's men in lab coats and yada, yada. I find out the next day that they end up finding my mother's body buried underneath that house that I found the photographs of. My father had dug a grave in the basement, buried her covered it up with concrete, covered up with indoor-outdoor carpeting that was sitting on our back porch for months, by the way. He had wrapped her in a blue tarp that was also sitting on our back porch in Mansfield for months because I identified all these things at trial. And he uh, had built bookshelves over it and repainted everything as if nothing had happened. Well, it was obviously premeditated, that's for sure. He had been planning it for a long time. And my father's a psychopath, and he wanted to bring my mother to Erie, Pennsylvania, so she would live with him, live with him Good and Lord. his new girlfriend and her baby. 
and probably myself and my, my sister, because I had a sister that was adopted from Taiwan six months before all this happened. How did your family react to you pointing the finger at your father? My, my father's side of the family was angry with me for, quote unquote, putting my father in jail. <laughs> and my mother's side of the family wanted nothing to do with me because they said I looked like my father. So I was remanded to this custody of the state, raised in the foster care system for about a year. So eventually the case goes to trial. You're going to testify in this trial, but give us a vibe. This had to be huge, huge news in your town. For a small town, much like the low country, yeah. this was like the trial of the century. This was the largest criminal trial in Richland County, which is where, I, where Mansfield is, Richland County history. This was really big news across the state. Uh, I mean, people out as far as California heard about it because this is a doctor who's murdered his wife. Can you compare what was going on with your trial in the 90s to what happened in the Murdoch trial? It, it's interesting when you compare the scenarios of something like the Murdoch trial now. This is 30 years later. You know, we've had the invention of the internet. We have social media. And there was no court TV, obviously, in 1990, at least for your thing. But you said that you told us that it was televised on the local channels. But here's the thing. You actually testified. Tell us about it. I testified in open court. You know what I mean? I literally was on the witness stand wow. for two days staring down my father, who wouldn't look at me, by the way. You know, the prosecutors are like, well, we don't need you to testify because they were trying to make it easier. But I was like, that's over my dead body. Huh. And I knew at 12 years old what was at stake because, I, and I had to do the right thing because I knew what happened to my mother. And I knew that if I didn't tell the truth and I didn't do everything that I had done leading up to this point, aggressively finding evidence against my father, alerting the police, et cetera, working with police. I knew that I would be sitting here 30 years later saying to myself, why didn't I do something? Mansfield was a small town. Hampton's a small town. Yes. You know, so obviously this is probably the biggest news that ever hit your town at the time. Could you, if you yes. went to the grocery store, did people know who you were and what was it like living in that spotlight? After the trial, I couldn't go anywhere. I, I, I could not because my face was on television all the, and on, in newspapers. I, I became this little boy that grew up in front of the world. It's almost like it's not nearly as nice and fun, but it's like being a child where people see you grow up and on, on camera. I grew up over those two-day trial, and it was a spectacle. I could not go anywhere. It's odd to me that people would come up to a 12-year-old and public and ask questions. I mean, I know your dad, your father was a very successful doctor who saw a lot of patients. What would they say to you? I, I would get people that would feel sorry for him or they'd say he didn't do it. Are you sure you heard what happened? It's such a shame what happened to him. He was framed. And I'm, and I'm sitting here going, I'm sitting here going, did you not listen to my, like, this man is guilty. There's, there's no question about this. They're talking to a 12-year-old and basically saying you were making this up, implying at least. Correct. Yeah. It's, it still happens. To what? this day, Matt, it still happens. That's insane to me. And people will even see that, will even see the, me on the witness standing going, oh, he's coached. He, he, he was coached through that. 
The body, wait, the body is, the body is in this house in Erie, which is your dad's place, buried there with stuff from the house. And there's still people who say, uh, you know, (laughs) it was just a coincidence that the body ended up there. Or they kind of like saying, well, she pushed him, you know, she, she made him crazy or some victim blaming like that. I mean, is that what's going on? That's absolutely correct. And the thing that's interesting is, you know, it is very difficult for an adult to keep a story straight when getting grilled on the witness stand for eight hours, let alone a child trying to keep. So the, the, the notion that I'm somehow making all of this up is utterly fanciful. Let's circle back to Buster Murdoch. He is like you in the sense that he has a, a father who was convicted of murder in Buster's case. It's the murder of his mother and his brother, so what do you think's going on with Buster? Do you guys know what cognitive dissonance is? Like it's a psychological term. Do you know what I'm talking about? I yes. do not. Yeah. Where it's two conflicting belief systems that are constantly at war with one another. So a basic example is uh, I, I'm a cigarette smoker, but I know smoking is bad for me. So every time I smoke a cigarette, I feel bad because I know that it's going to give me cancer because there's enough evidence that smoking leads to lung cancer, right? You know what I mean? So you have Buster Murdoch, who literally is... His father has has been convicted of this heinous crime. He's coping with that. Then he is dealing with the fact that the the victims of this heinous crime are his mother and his younger brother. And you can say whatever you want about his upbringing and about their, you know, how they operated uh, um, and how they were with people or the heightened arrogance, whatever. I don't know them. All that aside, that's what this guy is going through. So take that internal conflict that he's constantly dealing with and add now to that the, the, the shame of being part of a family that for a hundred for years was in control of the seat of power in the county that he grew up in and having that legacy that you thought at one point was a really good thing. Your dad is a very successful trial attorney. I, you know, I interviewed Dr. Kenny Kinsey on my podcast And he was saying, you know, Alec was an extremely good and very personable and outgoing trial attorney. He was very good at what he did. So there's that pride that comes from that. And then you have cascading down not only all these financial crimes and, and, and the opioid addiction and all of these other things, but then you have all these other cases. Uh, you you have the Gloria Satterfeld case. You now you have the Stephen Smith case, which is now being treated as a homicide, which people are saying that Buster Murdoch is involved in Buster killed him. And you, you know how many times I hear this. So you have this guy dealing with the fact that he's lost his mother, he's lost his brother, he's lost his father, and then he's being accused of a crime that we don't know if he's involved well, with or not. The latest seems that. He did not have anything to do with it. Is right. What we're hearing is that Buster did not have anything to do with the Stephen Smith. And on this podcast, we've left him <laughs> completely out of it the whole time because there's <laughs> nothing to back it up. And I don't think you should pile on the guy at this point. Precisely what I'm getting at. Yeah, right. Is exactly. This is what he's dealing with. Right. So not only is he dealing with the, mourning the loss of his mother, his, his younger brother, uh, uh, mourning the loss of his father. Look, I still <laughs> love my father. My father is a horrific human being he is a psychopath but he's still my father we yeah. don't know what where buster's thoughts are if he believes i mean obviously as far as, he, as, far as the murders we don't know if buster believes that his right. his father is innocent or guilty he has not come out and said that publicly 
Alec has admitted to all these financial crimes, so he, would, he knows that he's at, at at the very least he has sure. to believe his his dad stole millions of dollars from uh, people. And, and exactly, my my point is is that is is again talking about my own relationship with my father is he is in a state of cognitive dissonance because he is literally looking at the fact that his father's been convicted and whether or not he believes that, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? There is an internal conflict going on with him because it's not like he, it's not like his father was convicted of killing someone else, killed his mother and his brother. So as someone who literally, whose father murdered his mother, I, I was constantly, even though I hated my father, I was so conflicted about all of this because it's hard to, it's hard to really, look in the mirror and go, can I be related to that person? Oof. Can that, and that, and that has literally haunted me throughout my life. And that's why I made the film a murder in Mansfield because I wanted to find out why my father murdered my mother. And I was hoping for that perceived closure. And when you are somebody like Buster and you don't know either way, and it's, and quite frankly, it's none of anyone's business. Exactly. It yeah. <laughs> it's he nobody's business, it. but it's all, if this had happened to me 30 years later with the invention of the internet and social media and, and online sleuths, you know, he's having to file restraining orders, I believe, against reporters looking through his windows, yeah, yeah. people harassing him. People, you know, it's very interesting when you look at these cases now, even like the Idaho 4 case, for example, how everyone is quick to excoriate and jump on and vilify someone. And it doesn't just go to to the suspect who is in custody, Brian Koberger. It goes to the roommates that survived oh, yeah. that didn't call nine one one fast enough for people. Ridiculous. So nobody understands what it's like to be in that position, but everyone is quick to play Monday morning quarterback. Well, we saw and just last weekend there was there were photos circulating around the internet of Buster at Sam's Club. I mean, he he can't go to the grocery store without having a picture taken. I see no point of that. That's not newsworthy to me. I don't understand why an outlet would it, even it, print it's it. It's not newsworthy. And to me, like I couldn't go to the grocery store without being people coming up to me and being, "Oh, there's the kid. Oh, there he is." Yeah. Uh, and coming up to me, I could not. I could not um, have any. Uh, I, I I I had no peace really. And I know that your heart goes out to Buster, and there's so much more involved in this day and age with social media and whatnot. And you told us that you watched the HBO doc about the Murdoch situation. And what there was something that stood out to you. What was that? At the very end, he's on the phone with his father. He's talking about how he wanted to speak to Buster's girlfriend. He goes, oh, she's, you know, she's still sleeping. And, you know, we were at that party late. He's like, oh, y'all are partying last night? Can you on? And he's like, yeah. You know, he's kind of being short with his father. Yeah. And then he says, oh, well, um, you know, remember when mom used, I remember when mom used to get buzzed up. She was real funny, wasn't she? She was real funny. And he's just like, yeah. My father would do those exact same things. My father reminisces about my mother. Really? He's written me letters and I do, I've done them. You know, I, I, one of the things I do on the podcast and, and on my YouTube channel is I read my father's letters from prison to expose like gaslighting, psychopathy, narcissism, uh, you know, manipulation because my father, I have over 400 letters from my father over the years and him guilting me for, and they're in my film too, uh, guilting me for, testifying, say I was manipulated, calling me an unctuous brat and the family disowns me, et cetera, et cetera. 
this is the biggest thing with Buster Murdoch. All of this ire and this and this vitriol that these people have for the Murdoch's, he is the only one that's around now. So he is facing the brunt of all of oh, it and will point. continue to do so. And it's unfair, in my opinion. It's unfair. He hasn't done anything. You you want to try him on something? You want to have evidence against him? I'm happy to change my statement and my tune. But my heart goes out to the guy for what he's having to deal with. Because you imagine your father's in prison for murdering your mother and your brother. He's stolen all this money and victimized people over decades. He's a pill-popping addict. He tried to try to concoct this harebrained robbery suicide thing. Now you have two other two or three other fans three other families who have been victimized by him and and members of your family and you're the only one that's still walking around and the shame and the and the, the 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 guilt that he must feel this guy will never have a normal life again so for all the people that are wanting to destroy him because they feel that there's some sense of justice that needs to come down on him guess what his life has already been destroyed as he knows it and he hasn't done anything that we know of. He didn't choose born. it. He did yeah. not choose this he life. He made no choice. And, and, and even for me, like growing up and doing the right thing, knowing what I knew, I still was confronted with those demons. Even into relationships, like, oh, he's probably like his father. It's why I moved to Los Angeles is I wanted to, well, I wanted to move to, like, who wouldn't want to live here? But, you know, but I wanted to go to a place where no one knew who I was. And uh, I could start a life and I would know that people really liked me for who I was. And I wasn't on Twitter and TikTok and, and Instagram. And I, it wasn't televised every day on, on Law and Crime Network on YouTube and all of this. I was just a kid who was trying to get away from newspapers and, and being shown on the nightly news. I can't imagine what it's like for Buster. You're choosing to yeah, put yourself you, out there now. Now, yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, and, he, and, I, and I make the choice. And so when yeah. people come after me or people say things to me, it's like, look, I have put myself out there. I made a film. I then decided to start a podcast. I, I talk about these issues to raise awareness for violent crime and victims of violent crime and the survivors of violent crime because that's something I've become passionate about and I can use my voice to hopefully make a better mark on society, right? Now you've done that, and and Buster may do that, but what is Buster facing? What what he is going to face is that he is that he his legacy has been tarnished, and people don't understand it, and then they just want to keep going. They keep wanting to grate him and debase him, and I don't think it's fair. As someone who's been through it, it's not fair. Watching him at trial, he really seemed uncomfortable. Like he didn't want to be there, and he. You know, you're sitting there and he's got a whole gallery of people staring at the back of his head. And to me, my take on him was he, he seemed like a private person. He, I didn't see him talking to anyone other than his immediate family members. And the whole camera's on him the whole time. And they're analyzing, well, look, he scratched his face. That means this, this, this. He you know, he wiggled in his chair. You know, the body experts all making these things. And, you know. He picked his nose. Oh, he yeah. picked his nose. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's impossible. You hug your father as you're leaving the jail, visiting him, and you tell him you love him, how do you come to grab, grasp with someone you love doing something terrible but still loving them? I mean, look, it's so funny because when the film came out, a reporter from the New York Times goes, he talks about that exact moment. He says, you know what moment in the film tells me everything I need to know about you? So he's like, it's three seconds. He's like, 
after you're trying to get this sort of confession out of your father and he's just not giving you anything and you're, you're obviously visibly frustrated, you stand up and you hug him and you say, I love you, Pop. He's like, that tells me everything I need to know about you. The thing is, is that as horrible as Alec Murdaugh is, he's still Buster's father. I'm sure I have good memories of my father. I have a little He-Man thing and I did a post about Father's Day and cognitive dissonance. And I remember tickling my father to get this out of his jacket when I was a kid. So my mom said, oh, go tickle daddy. He's got something for you or whatever. It was a master of the universe figure. I think it was like four years old. That's a memory that I have. I'm sure I look at pictures of the Murdochs. Uh, the Murdochs. It, it looks like they had a nice life. There was probably a lot of really fun, good memories Absolutely. that his kids grew up with. And, you know, he's got to hold on to those good parts of his father. It's a really difficult balance because he can't go into a place where he hates his father. He can't hate the world for what happened. He can't blame himself for what happened. I don't know if he does or not, you know, but I went through that. And I had nothing to do with it. I, I did everything I could to get my father caught, to lead police, to get justice for my mother. And I still had this survivor's guilt. I, can, um, I, I know exactly what he's going through because he has, he's coping with all of this. Forget all the other stuff that he's facing. Just the fact that he's still here and probably saying, why couldn't it have been me instead of Paul? Right. Why couldn't it have been me instead, wow. instead of mom, instead of Maggie? I would rather have been them. Or why couldn't he have taken me too? Why couldn't I have been down and we all would have been done for? And then I wouldn't have to sit here and deal with this aftermath. Wow. That's wow. probably what makes him, that's probably what affects him the most is not only his relationship with his father and what that looks like now and all the things that he's dealing with. The fact that he is still here mm -hmm. and no one else is. That's it. And he's going through this. Why, why am I the chosen person? Is he going to take the bull by the horns and say, I'm not my father. I'm not my family. And I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. So be it. Well, thanks caller so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on my website, callyourlandry.com. All things call your Landry are there. Uh, you find me on YouTube at call your Landry. Uh, my podcast is Moving Past Trauma. I also co-host Survivor Squad with Tara Newell of Dirty John fame. Um, check it out. I release new episodes every week on YouTube and on the podcast platforms. And uh, follow me on all the socials at Collier Landry. Thanks, man. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. We really appreciate you coming on. You're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Collier. Thanks, Collier. All right. We want to tell you about a new podcast that we've got uh, coming out. We're working with Michael DeWitt on this. It is called... The Wicked South. And it's a Facebook page. Yes, we our Facebook page is The Wicked South Podcast. We still have the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page. It also is under- No, we changed our name. Oh, we did? Good job. Yes, we, no, we, we changed our name to Impact of Influence because oh we are still covering Shanquilla. We are going to get back to it. Um, and we're not just doing Murdoch stuff. Yeah, so you can do that. Impact of Influence Podcast page, uh, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 